Welcome to another IFE podcast. Our podcast today is a Grand Challenge lecture by Dr. Kathy Foley from CSIRO Manufacturing. Dr. Foley is a highly respected scientist who has made distinguished contributions to our understanding of superconducting materials and the development of devices using superconductors. Her lecture, entitled Superconductivity, Has It Touched Your Life, was delivered on Friday 6th October 2017 at QUT's Gardens Point campus in Brisbane. Please enjoy this Grand Challenge lecture podcast. So I'm going to be talking about has superconductivity touched your life? And I thought I'd, first of all, though, I was given the brief to uh, talk about my research, but also about what I do at CSRO. And instead, what I thought I'd do is just talk a little bit about the organisation, but in a historical context. I'm also going to introduce superconductivity in a very... Uh, simplistic view just to get an idea of why it's such an interesting area and why it can do so much. So I'm going to talk about how it's touched my life and then hopefully I'll talk about how it's touched your life. So that's what the plan is for this afternoon. So let's look at CSIRO and I'm going to go back, it's 100 years old and back in the 1920s it was set up to do things for solving big problems. So probably forget that the um, prickly pear was a huge me menace in Australia and we introduced the cactoblastis moth to go and eat them up and it's no longer a problem. Then in the 30s we had the rabbits and we all know about um, myxomatosis and the wonderful story about Clooney's Ross injecting himself with it. I don't think it would pass HSE requirements and ethics requirements these days but he, tried to, he was showing that it actually doesn't uh, hurt humans. And, and now we've got the Khaleesi virus and uh, we still have rabbits but they're not as bad as they were. Then in the 1940s, CSRO was involved with uh, developing radar for World War II. And after World War II, Ruby Payne Scott, who was one of the first, well, the first female radio astronomer, suggested that we should take the radar and point it at the sky and hence was one of the ones who, people who created radio astronomy, which Australia is one of the world leaders in that. And we had the, the square kilometre away and a whole lot of stuff all around the world leading to that. Then we come to the 50s and CSIRO um, was heavily involved with seeing Australia ride on the sheep's back and uh, with that we had a whole textile industry and did you know that not only did we tell, um, work out how to stop jumpers from shrinking, uh, we also taught the Italians how to weave. So whenever you wear, got an Italian cloth, it's actually using CSRO weaving technology, which is pretty exciting. Even though we don't do that much, that sort of research now, we're now um, using the same understanding of fibres uh, for looking at improving carbon fibre. So it's amazing how things keep on moving on. Uh, back in the 60s, though, uh, we even had the Queen herself come and be a live guinea pig for science research. And that was because when she came to visit in 1963, we still hadn't got the, the cow pats removed from introducing the dung beetle, and so there were lots of flies. They were really worried when she was going to play golf that she was going to have too many flies. So she was actually one of the first people to use Aeroguard, which of course is part of the Australian Have a Good Weekend. So uh, CSRO's had many impacts on even the culture. We're all about, in the past, doing good science, solving the big Australian problems, and we're doing it for over 100 years. And that's what we're here to do. It's a bit different from the university perspective, although uh, one of the things I've learnt today with uh, QUT is that we really are, um, I think, very much uh, aligned with each other, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to endeavour bigger, stronger, deeper relationships. 
But what have we been doing more recently? So uh, this is looking very exciting, that this is where we helped a company develop a non-woven fabric and a company called Textile Technologies down in Melbourne. They were about to go out of business. They came to us with a problem saying, we'd like to uh, see if there's a better way of making baby nappy liners and developed a new non-woven material, which now is uh, supplying Kimberly Clark all around the world. They employ lots more people and it's a, a growing building company, in fact, they're uh, setting up manufacturing overseas as well, not because of reducing Australia's import, but a lot of major companies want com um, manufacturing done in two companies just for safety reasons, so if there's a supply chain problem. You may not need this right now as um, if for newborn babies because it wicks away the poo and stops nappy rash, but maybe in our old age we'll be very happy about that. <laughs> Another thing that CSRO developed in conjunction actually with the University of Queensland was Relenza flu drug. So this is going back looking at the actual bit of the flu that doesn't change from, um, from year to year, uh, understanding the crystallography of that, and that's the stuff that was done in CSRO. And then at University of Queensland, they designed the drug around that and set up a company called Biota that was then bought out by... Galaxo, Smith and Klein, and it's, this is an interesting story of how we didn't have quite enough money to develop it into something which is taken orally, and it's, and it's taken um, by sniffing, and we don't like sniffing drugs in Australia, apparently, unless they're of a sort and sort called cocaine, and, um, and so this is something that's really interesting. It's got a very good ability to stop get people getting used to it. I forget, well, the drug resistance is, uh, doesn't build up with this. And Tamiflu actually is a competing drug, which isn't as good, and yet it's not going as, as well fine, uh, as a drug of choice. So at the moment, what we're doing is looking at developing that drug, that's um, the ability to take it orally. So that's sort of a lesson learned. Always make sure you know your market. Another thing which we've been involved with, um, which is part of everyday life, is the development of a, a special uh, polymer, which is able to keep wet and the development of um, the ICRC or the Vision CRC are developing continuous wear contact lenses. And so this is something which is now part of everyday life. It's, it's something where uh, we've got to the point where the patents have run out and we're, not, we're missing the royalties from that, but it's something that is um, ubiquitous. And then, of course, every time you pay for something with, uh, with money, think of CSRO because we invented the plastic banknote, which is now used by many countries around the world and is uh, not yet being uh, counterfeited. Another thing which uh, is the development of, of, in this case, it's um, Bali Max, which is um, a barley which is going to save your life. Not only does it help you with your digestive system, so it reduces your cholesterol, it improves your gut health, and it reduces uh, blood pressure, and reduces a chance of bowel cancer, and improves uh, heart health. So everyone should be going out and eating that. And it's uh, apparently non-GMO. Then this is something which is really interesting. This is the green whistle, which you've probably seen in... Um, it's an emergency medicine uh, where you breathe it in, you can't overdose on it. It's an analgesic that is also, uh, people aren't allergic to it, and, and it's able to be self-administered. The thing that's really interesting is the company we helped develop this came back to us saying uh, we want to be able to go to, from the Australian market where we've saturated it to the world market. The chemistry doesn't work. Help us, we've got no money. So CSRO took the risk, invested money into developing a new med uh, process, and, and then it worked, 
then the company adopted that process and now they've gone from being a $3 million company to a $300 million company delivering all around the world. And that's what we want to do for Australian manufacturers is more of that thing, getting small companies to develop new processes, new materials, new, new products so that they can really be globally competitive because the country needs them. And of course, our, our most famous thing, which has kept a lot of uh, research that alive through the CEIF program, is the wireless LAN, which was developed from uh, the people who used some of their knowledge from radio astronomy and dealing with signals from that and actually coming up with this great way, which of course is absolutely ubiquitous and changed the whole way the whole world works. But one of the things that's really interesting with that is our engagement with Macquarie University, who helped through Dave Skellen to get it picked up by the IEEE as the international standard. And if that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have had that impact. So one of the things that's really important for us is um, all the way through we've had our best outcomes have usually been in collaboration with a university partner. And also you've got to look at the whole big picture of things. You've got to have the university partner, but also the industry and also the regulatory system and framework around it too. So one of the things though is that a bright idea takes about 20 years to being a product. And that's something which means that in any life cycle of a, of a researcher, you three would probably be a maximum if you're lucky, two is doing well, but most people are really happy with one. I guess so far I've been involved with um, probably two and I'm on to my third, I guess, but it's, and that's what I'm gonna be talking about today. But one of the things I suppose why I love working for CSRO is that we're not really like this with nerds being people who get in on that. You've got to have a whole spectrum of people. But, um, and we don't necessarily look like those beautiful attired people. And, uh, but this is my team at CSRO where it's just regular people getting in there, doing research and doing things they love. And I suppose one of the things I love about working as a scientist is we're a little bit like Superman or Superwoman. We go into the lab, we turn into people who are, I think, changing the world and saving the world in many ways. And uh, as, a, as uh, someone who, I guess, has strong Catholic guilt, this is a perfect job for me because it's my way of saving the world. So I'm gonna now move change gears and talk about superconductivity. So I've given you the CSRO story. But um, I want to go back to 1911. It's a really interesting year. It was the year that ACT was established as um, the, the national capital state. Uh, actually had the first Australian census and there were 4,455,005 people. I didn't put that in, in, in Australia. Douglas Mawson started his expedition to Antarctica. University of Queensland opened. The Commonwealth Bank was established and Ronald Reagan was born. So that's how long... There's something else that happened too, and that is uh, General Electric invented the first uh, commercial refrigerator, and a couple of years later it was able to be bought. So that's a uh, first. But over in the Netherlands, Hamelinger Ones in University of Leiden, I went through and um, used the thing where there's not an awful lot of, but I'll do it anyway. It's sort of fun. Everyone forgets how things cool. And if you go through and uh, go on your hand, it's always warm. We go, same breath is cold. And the reason for that is when you pass a gas through a small hole, it cools it down. And lucky for us, because we get refrigeration, uh, Camerlinger owners use that and a whole lot of other stuff. And with his also very good Giles Forst um, as his technical officer, was able to get helium gas and liquefy it so that he was able to get down to temperatures of minus 270 degrees. And being a good scientist, he um, went through and um, got a material 
uh, in this case mercury, and cooled it down, and he went through just measuring the resistance. So he had resistance versus temperature, and he got to a point where something unexpected happened, and that is the resistance fell away to zero. And it was completely unexpected, and they called that superconductivity, and they won Nobel Prizes for it, and, and it's been something which for, it was really about 40 years later that before it started being understood and actually applications being used. So it was something which was a big worry. So I'm just going to quickly give you 101 of superconductivity and what the properties are that are relevant for today. So the first one is that it, when a material is superconducting and you cool it below what's called a critical temperature, it loses all the resistance to the flow of electricity. So that means that you're able to make, say, if you've got a wire, and we go back to you know, right-hand screw law from high school, you can make an electromagnet. So you wind it up into a coil, and you can make very big magnetic fields. And so you can see here there's a picture of an MRI machine. Most people don't realize that MRI machines are, um, usually have helium-cooled wires in them, usually a niobium-based alloy of some sort. And uh, as a consequence of that, they're able to create large magnetic fields that are able to do sort of the equivalent of NMR on your body. So that's as well as you can use it for uh, transporting current from where we make it to where we use it with lower losses. We'll talk a bit about that in a minute. The other thing too is that there's a property, if you've got something where you've got a current going through it and there's zero resistance, that means you'll end up with a persistent current. That means the current doesn't die away. And so if you have a uh, current that's, in a, that's induced into a superconductor, say so you just move it in a magnetic field, it's a nice big magnet, just move a superconductor in that. If it's cold, it'll create a persistent current. And of course, again, current going around it, you get an opposing magnetic field, and so you can get magnetic levitation, and that's called the Meissner effect. And it can do important things like levitate sumo wrestlers, which is very important. And then a third property, which is really interesting for PhD students here, is that if you get two superconductors, say my hands are two superconductors, I'm a battery and my arms are, are electrodes, if you bring them close together, you can get a current coming from one superconducting electrode to another if they're close enough together, and you get this very nonlinear response to magnetic fields. So it's, um, you see there, it's, and physicists love anything that's nonlinear because it means we can get something interesting happening and, and use it in a way, in this, say, to detect magnetic fields, for example. And that's this particular property I'll be talking about more too because this is what I've been, the last 30 or so years has been what my life's been about. And the reason why PhD students would find this interesting was Brian Josephson at University of Cambridge, this was his PhD thesis and he won a Nobel Prize for it. And uh, after he won his Nobel Prize, he decided to in, not to do standard physics and he's been sort of doing ghostbuster research ever since, trying to understand the physics of the supernatural. So, uh, and he's still doing it now. There's been lots of Nobel Prizes in physics and it's been a rich area for people over the years because it's been such a fascinating physical phenomena and we still really don't understand it and I'll explain why. So what is superconductivity? It, we've heard what the properties are. It's actually a property of many materials but you have to cool them to very low temperatures. And it's only demonstrated when you get it below a particular critical temperature and different, tem different materials have different temperatures. And in fact, there's some theories that says that all conductors are a superconductor if you can get them cold enough. But there's, you know, there's still really some that the um, jury is out on that. Here's a list of what we call low temperature superconductors, which uh, you can see here, aluminium, tin, lead, um, zinc, 
Uh, and then there's alloys as well, which um, or compounds there that are also superconducting. But you can see here they're all quite low temperatures. That's kelvins. So what, how does it work then? How can you get zero resistance? So I'm going to do a Mickey Mouse description, just give you an idea of what's going on and why this is such a fascinating area from a physics perspective. So let's go back to high school physics here where you have a metal, where you have the lattice is positive and you've got the electrons that move through that are negative. So that's a normal, in a normal, in a normal metal, when the current passes through, it runs or knocks into the lattice and so that's what causes the resistance to the flow of electricity. Pretty simple method of thinking about it. So let's just slow everything down and think that we've got a lattice with just a single electron there. And what you find is that the, the lattice will be attracted being positive to the electron, which is negative. And so what happens is where it's red, you end up with an extra positiveness. And if you've got another electron sitting on the outside, the electron sees that extra positiveness there and it says, I want to go and follow up behind that. And so what you end up with then, if you put this in place, is the electron passes through, it brings the lattice towards it, which makes it look more positive, and then the electron behind comes and follows up behind it. And these Cooper pairs, are because of that phonon, which is the movement of the lattice engaging with the electrons, allows it to pass through if um, it's cold enough and if you're able to get um, that interaction right. So let's just look about at another way. So let's pretend we're in a mosh pit and you've drunk too much Coca-Cola and uh, you really need to go to the bathroom. How do you do that? So what if we could solve this problem by getting someone to crowd surface, surf? So the idea is, is the first electron convinces the next atom that you deserve special treatment. You really do need to go to the toilet. Uh, once the process starts, everyone joins in and you begin to get this moving forward effortless, effortlessly. And so the person-to-person -person exchange is a bit like um, what happens with the two electrons in your body is the electrical charge going through. But the thing is that if everyone's dancing too hard and moving around like in a normal atom, uh, everything's wobbling because of the temperature, you're going to get dropped. So in order to stop being dropped, you need to slow it down, and that's done by reducing the temperature. And so that's only why you have to get to a certain critical temperature in order to make sure that the lattice isn't moving around so much that the electrons can go through and pair up and move through. So this is sort of a ning-nong version of how to get it, but it gives you this idea of how you get electrons pairing, moving through, and why you need to slow and go to a lower temperature. Ideally, if we were able to get room temperature superconductors, you would have a massive impact on a whole lot of things, and I'll explain that in a minute. So let's now move to 1987. That's 30 years ago. And um, let's go back what was happening 30 years ago. Ronald Reagan, who was born when Oprah Winfrey started her TV show saying she really cares about us. Uh, we had high-tech uh, pho photographs with disposable cameras. Uh, we had video cameras and TVs and mobile phones and computers. I think Lisa came out around that time too. On the Mac, that looks like a Mac. And also something else happened and uh, John Bell, who's the head of school here, is, um, was actually at this. I wasn't because I'll explain why not later. But this had the Woodstock of physics. <laughs> and this was an amazing thing. It's not often you get physics on the front page of the New York Times. And they were crowded into, into the theatre waiting to listen until very late at night, about three and four in the morning, listening to this amazing discovery. 
And what they were hearing about was that these two guys, Bednoz and Muller, had come up with ceramic material which was superconducting at 36 Kelvin. And then in um, March, which was just a few weeks before the, the March meeting in, um, in New York, with um, Paul Chu and, and, and Professor Wu, they came up with yttrium barium copper oxide, which actually superconduct at 93 Kelvin. So, yeah, so what's so exciting? Well, it was seen as a, it was on the front page of Time magazine as a potential uh, superconductivity revolution. And the reason for this is that helium is a real pain to use. It's expensive, it can be between 30 and uh, $80 a litre, it's difficult to handle. Um, you've got to have special pressure regulated type um, containers and it's something which has made it difficult other than in hospitals and laboratories really to use. Liquid nitrogen though is a byproduct of um, separating air and so you can handle it like boiling water, it's about 13 cents a litre, it's cheaper than bottled water or petrol and it's, um, and it's something which he, that person's looking very careful there but I, you can actually um, be quite casual with it, although you don't want to asphyxiate yourself, but it's, um, it's something which is um, much easier to use. So suddenly superconductivity looked like it were used in a number of different ways. And this is something that came out around um, uh, 30 years ago, and this is from IST, which was a special institute set up in, um, in Japan, looking at all the different applications from whether it's information systems, uh, traffic systems, welfare, advanced welfare society, uh, transport again, uh, big science technologies, saving energy, but there's a whole lot of things we can use for um, whether it's biomedical applications, whether it's communications, uh, whether it's sensing of some sort, uh, whether it's transport, whether it's conduction and power systems. So suddenly there's a realisation that this, all these potential applications which could not happen because helium was too hard, too expensive, were suddenly a possibility. So let's just have a look at this material. So this material is a ceramic, not a metal, and at room temperature it is still a conductor. It's a really complicated thing. And it is like a bathroom tile. So trying to make something like a wire out of a brick is not necessarily easy. So that was part of the problem why we've had troubles with it. But you can see since the discovery of YBCO, there have been a number of different um, materials, and there have been even more than this, but I'll just keep this simple. And there's still... Uh, rich research going on, including here, on trying to find the, first the understanding of how we can get to even higher critical temperatures. But what we're finding is that they still are quite complex materials. And this is something which is, a, again, only giving some of the work showing that um, from the discovery of superconductors in 1911 up to present day, you can see there was a linear approach but there was a very big difference in the way thing, the temperature is something like that's a critical temperature on the um, y-axis in the year of discovery. And you can see there that the discovery of the cuprates as a superconductor really took things off the chart. And I've marked in there where liquid helium is and where liquid nitrogen is. There's a big problem though, and that is that um, that theory where they have the electrons passing through and the lattice squashing down on it is called the BCS theory, and uh, the guys who discovered that won a Nobel Prize about it. But it actually says the maximum temperature for a superconductor to become, a criti to become critical is about 40 Kelvin. And these are actually at, um, at a much higher temperature. The reason is they felt the thermal energy, that wobbling, is too high to sustain or form the Cooper pairs. 
So the problem is that even when we've got the best superconductors are about 150 Kelvin, we don't really understand what the mechanism for superconductivity is for these high temperature superconductors. So for those of you who are looking for a future Nobel Prize, if you can figure that out, there's one for you, very quick. So off you go. In 1989 was a big year for me too. I had my first child, which um, that's one of my cuties. They're now not so cute and in their 20s. And, uh, and I focused on this particular property and I'm gonna spend a little bit of time of how superconductivity touched my life at that time. I had been working in a background of nitride semiconductors for a PhD, then I worked in magnetics at CSIRO as a postdoc, and, uh, and then they brought together a team of people, and I know John was part of that team as well, looking at this newly discovered material. My aim was to create some device using two bits of superconductor and um, see if we can get a current running across it to make something that's responsive to a magnetic field. The thing is though, that with the helium-cooled superconductors, that gap is about three micrometers. But for um, nitrogen-cooled ones, it's about one nanometer. And for those of you who don't know how nanometers, I'm told that our fingernails grow about a nanometer a minute, uh, a second. So that's pretty small. And so trying to get something that small is pretty, using a ceramic material is, you know, like a bathroom tile, asking a lot. And this is when we started making thin films going from the left to the right. We started making really crummy ones until eventually we got to a point where we were able to make them. They're still polycrystalline, but they were able to get all the, all the crystals lined up in the same direction. So that was the first task. But this is not an easy material. This is some work done by Judith Driscoll from uh, University of Cambridge, where they're looking at these materials are nowhere near perfect. They've got lots of default, uh, faults in them, voids, dislocations, defects. And so making a perfect uh, material, if you think about electronics and silicon as absolutely perfect with no defects, trying to make something like that so you can create a nanometer structure is asking an awful lot. But what they found was the grain boundary between the grains, if you rotated the grains, you actually were able to get, this is a critical current going across, and this is the angle on the y-axis, um, the y-axis, yeah, between the grains. If you muck around with the grain, angle, you could actually get to a point where at the high grains you got a low critical current, a lower critical current, which sort of suggested that we've got that action going on. So there are a whole range of ideas coming up in order to say how can we create that grain boundary where we want it. Uh, we'll cut out the ones which aren't very interesting and didn't work real well. And so these were the ones which were, where we had one where you had a two, the substrate, you cut it and rotate it so that you're able to force a grain boundary growing across it. Another one is you can cut a, a step into the substrate and grow force grains at the top and the bottom. And the other one is actually just putting in a really thin piece of material in between, which doesn't work very well. So this was the aim, creating that grain boundary, which is about a nanometer in width. And that was that idea of creating that crystal lattice by changing the substrate and growing the film on it. The only problem with that is that you can see here that the, the thing down the middle there, it's very wobbly. And so we're not gonna get very good electronic material um, or performance happening that way. So this is my claim to fame. And I spent you know, just a minor 20 years of my life on, is going to try and say, can we get a material, put a step in the substrate, and we looked at whether it's strontium titanate, and we also looked at magnesium oxide. You can see that this is a very anisotropic material, which means it grows with the C-axis and the AB-axis quite different. So the, the C-axis is vertical, but strontium titanate, it goes down the step like a soldier, uh, while uh, MGO, it actually swings around and goes down following the substrate. 
So we went from making really horrible looking uh, grain boundaries, where you can see the step edges there, and getting to a point where we um, played around, which I won't go into the details of, to create something where we had a step edge where we have at the top of the step, so this is going down the step, this is the MGO here, this is the superconducting material. We create a grain boundary across here and we have a rounded bottom so we only just have a single grain boundary and we, and, um, we can control that. We sort of called it an Escher step because you go down and then you didn't notice it coming up the other side. And this is what it looks like when you use a TEM on it. So you can see the grain boundary here and this rounded bottom. There's a bit of strain there but it doesn't behave like a Josephson junction which is the name of that structure after the guy invented it. So this is a TM of it. You can see the grain boundary forced there and uh, you've got very nice clean uh, lattice layers going across the grain boundary. And so oh, this is now my advertisement. I'm the editor-in-chief of this journal and you do superconductivity research here and I believe you do publish but it's a really good high-impact journal. Please publish. End of, end of advertisement. Anyway, and we do have nice covers sometimes. So I wasn't editor-in-chief when my thing was on the front there. But um, you can see we were able to do that. But what we have to worry about is that we've got those Cooper pairs where that's the bit that's superconducting. You have just regular current uh, electrons going across. But these are the things which cause us grief and that's still an area of rich research which we're looking at to say, can we improve that grain boundary so we don't have these resonant tunneling, so electrons get in there, tunnel, hang around, make lots of noise, or they trap, get trapped and then escape and they cause increased noise because we're trying to make, use these to make a device which I'll show in a minute. So they're the problem child for us. So what we did is um, we take the YBCO, make the step edge junction, uh, the grain boundary step edge junction, and then we put it into a loop of superconducting material to create a thing called a SQUID, a superconducting quantum interference device. What it does is that the loop of material is able to concentrate magnetic fields, force the current, uh, that using the Meissner effect to make currents go around it, force it through the little grain boundary, which is where that single grain boundary, and when it goes across here, you get that non-linear effect, put into a bunch of electronics, and you can get a linearized response. And with that, you can detect very small magnetic fields like the ones that come from your brain or your heart, for example. So this is our um, HTS squid, which is now after many years of development. They're on a header here. We actually have an insurance policy. Uh, so this, we have a little loop and then a bigger loop. We use one or the other so that we always make sure they work. This is, you can see here the grain boundary, uh, the step edges here. This is a DC squid with two, two junctions in it. And this is the noise floor here. You can see this is where we have the problem we're trying to get rid of, where those resonant tunneling sites are. We're still working on that, but we're getting to a point where I think the next picture shows where we're getting to. So these are the different biomagnetic fields. So we can actually detect a human brain with this. You can sort of see the different environmental noises. So the Earth's magnetic field here is way up here. And if you think uh, the Earth's magnetic field is 100 times weaker than a fridge magnet, and then we come all the way down. These are um, the magnetic field of, say, a car at 50 metres. We can uh, pick a movement of a screwdriver at five metres. We can pick up a car at two kilometres. And uh, we can also pick up fetal heart, well, not with HTS ones, but we can measure um, or just um, with human brains. But the other thing we're looking at at the moment is arrays where we put lots of these in, in series. And this is what we've been working on is putting lots of these squids together to make super sensitive devices. And this is um, our latest research at the moment. And this can be used from super sensitive devices 
as well as making uh, very broadband antennas and a whole lot of new electronics. So that's, that's the sort of research we're doing at the moment. So that's um, sort of what I, my, my research when I um, was at the bench. But then the thing was we're very much applied. And the reason we were doing this was that we've got a lot of minerals in Australia, but they're covered over by the um, conducting overburden because we've got very old soils. And uh, uh, when we were doing the research originally, back in the early, in 1987, we got one of these things called a GERD grant, which is a generic industry research and development grant, where we had Nucleus by Med Company. We had AWA, um, which at that stage was an um, electronics company. And we had BHP, which is a mining company, because there are lots of applications there. The when we were able to show our squids could detect centimetre holes in steel, which I know you can use your eye, but it was actually showing you the response. The BHP people showed the results to their geophysicists who said, oh my goodness, we would love to be able to use this system in the field to look for buried minerals we can't see in any other way. And so this is a story of us going from, we call it Lantem, and that's because like in all research organisations, you have challenges with funding and we found something, handy hint, give your system a name, it's like having a dog or a pet with a name, you can't kill it. And so we were able to keep this project alive with the ups and downs of funding. And we went from the early 90s where we did our first ground-based trial with BHP here, and this we had something that looked like um, Mr Squiggle's rocket. Uh, we did things in the air and then we got to a point where we've got a commercial system which was uh, licensed and manufactured by a company originally in, um, in Brisbane and then they moved to Perth. We did some of our trials in the Arctic and you can see here we went from having a box of from um, plastic box with all the electronics and wires in it. We did this in the Arctic because sometimes you're looking for money from anyone and we went to Canada to get some funding. Uh, there's a squid system buried in the snow and we had to take it from an experiment in a Woolies plastic box through a fully functional system which has got all the electronics, the controllers, and um, the batteries. And I've got batteries here. Oops. And, um, and so we were able to uh, go through and show that this is the traditional technique that they use. This is a coil, because what they do is they put a pulse of current in, create eddy currents in anything that's a conductor, and then use a, a, a magnetic sensor to see over time to see um, whether there's something ringing after you turn the current off. And so the coil system missed this ore body here, but the squid system showed a big bump. So that's, you're sort of looking for bumps in, it, in the signal. And so we went from things like this, where it's a classic field trial, which was done in 1992 in Cooper You can see here we had a wonderful windshield, a garbage bin upside down. And we got to a point where we did work with BHP that led to them discovering the, and delineating the Cannington silver mine. Uh, which is Australia's biggest, or the world's biggest silver mine, which would have been missed had it not been detected by our squid system. It's now been responsible for discovery of billions of dollars worth of mines around the world, and you can look up Lantem, and if, it's often used in the ASX announcements by mining companies to try and boost their profits when they say they've discovered a new mine, and that's the Lantem system. And just um, to show that as someone who, saving the world is important, being super people, um, this is an example of how actually our system was identified as being helpful during the global financial crisis when uh, Australia didn't actually go into the red like all the other countries. 
And that was partly because of the work from Western Australia with the, um, even though we had the downturn, the um, royalties from Western Australia, which was mostly nickel sulfides, uh, was the savior of our economy at that time. And CSIRO stuff with the LANTEM, which is the name of the system, it was actually identified as the backbone of, uh, of the Western Australian nickel industry. So we sort of feel like it's a little bit of a long, long bow, but we felt that we saved Australia. So. You can use that same technology for a range of applications from looking for submarines, looking for other minerals, for looking for oil exploration and unexploded ordnance detection. And so we've had a whole lot of different systems developed over the years. I could give a whole talk on that, but I'm not because I want to go on to other things which are not my research, but how superconductivity possibly has touched your life and is making a difference in society now. So there's, this is magnetically shielded where we've got things inside and there's lots of examples of squid systems from whether they're little baby systems looking for those fetal heart monitoring, looking at the systems to understand how the brain works, doing quality assurance of looking at wires. And this is something we developed a metal in food detector. We've had ones which can be used, flown behind airplanes. We've seen lantern, work with defense looking for submarines. We've um, looked under water for oil. We've blown them behind things. Uh, we've worked with the communications in low frequency communications in, in uh, mines, unexploded ordnance detection underwater, and terahertz imaging, which is a bit like Superman vision, and of course, lantern. Okay, so I've been so far talking about little small scale applications, but superconductivity can be used for main uh, large scale. And I want to go and have a look at that because this is something which, particularly when we're talking about energy, there's a real opportunity here where we could actually have a whole lot of superconductivity in all these systems where we have the power plant, the transmission lines, the power substation, the transformers and everything coming into our house. So that's how the system works. But the thing is that the wires, when they, even though they're conductors, they're a little bit like a minibar radiator and they're always giving off energy. So if you look at the, the sum here, we've got the fuel coming in, we lose a whole lot in heat when we're making the, the electricity using standard uh, coal-based power generators. Then we're looking at the transmission, we're losing quite a lot along the way there. And only 20 to 30% of the original fuel energy actually reaches our point of use. So there's lots of opportunities for improvements. So can we reduce the losses by using that zero resistance? And there's been huge developments around the world. And in fact, I was surprised when I went to a, a recent cryocooler conference in um, Karlsruhe in Germany just recently, that many countries are now beginning to implement superconducting wires in built up areas. And they have a wire which has, you can see here, um, a bit where they've got thermal insulation and then they're able to run the fluids either through there and some of them through the center. And so you're able to keep the wires cool and um, have a huge impact. So instead of having overhead wires or lots of copper cables, you can actually run a single cable which holds a lot more power and is built up area, got a lot more convenience and, um, re and can be a retrofit when you want to increase the amount of power, say when you're building up an area, which is terribly important in, in as we're becoming more urbanly dense. So this is a classic example of a, a test system, which is in the USA. You can see the superconducting system there, and that's actually running, going into two kilometers of, of a test run that's been operating for years and years and years. So it's actually something which is now mainstream. And um, at the moment, at our Linfield site at Sydney, we're trying to bring more power onto that. And we're negotiating with Osgrid to see whether or not they should use it as a test site for Australia for having the first superconducting wire there. 
And this is just to show the life cycle impact because you have to take the net energy use to make the wires. This is a copper wire versus a superconducting wire. Whether they're leftovers in the mines because they're, you know, they're not perfect, water waste and CO2. But you can see this is where it wins in the whole life cycle. It's a huge reduction in CO2. And you can see lots of different places, not just the power generation, but you can have things from uh, fault current limiters, cables, superconducting motors, transformers, power energy systems, and superconducting generators. So that, and then there's some ways, other ways which we can use it too, such as in uh, maglev trains. And anyone's been to Shanghai will have probably travelled on the um, on the Shanghai maglev train. Little problem is it costs about eighteen million dollars per kilometre, but the emissions are low and um, and you are, are, don't use as much power, electrical power. And that's the Shanghai maglev train. This is sort of it's quite complex, and I'm not going to go through this, but you can sort of see it's got a mixture of helium and and nitrogen because it's run on um, using low TC superconductors. But this is the drive shaft under, or the drive underneath the train. So it's something which maybe one day we'll see that superconductor train coming from, from Brisbane all the way to Melbourne via Sydney and Canberra, let's hope. This is something which I thought was really exciting because um, Richard Taylor here has been, you see QUT and Siemens. When you look at any defence magazine, Siemens actually has all these advertisements saying how you guys are working with them to make a superconducting motor. And this is a conventional one. This is for these big ships. Uh, this is, say, a, 65, a 67 megawatt ship propulsion, and you can actually see something a lot smaller by using a superconducting motor. thing that's interesting was just, oh, and you can save a million dollars a year in fuel, so that's very encouraging for any ship, and also can be much more complex. And I just thought I'd show you Richard Taylor's uh, work that he's doing, and that's just the superconducting motor in your own organisation here down the road at Banyos. And uh, I saw that this morning, and I can't wait to come back and see it operating. It's um, really exciting because I've been wanting to have a superconducting motor for a long time. But with all the, the planning for Australia to have new frigates, with all these um, cruise line, you know, the, all the cruises taking over and all that, you can just imagine the amount of wasted fuel that is being used in all these big motors. If we had superconducting motors on all those ships, it would immediately have a huge impact. Biomedical applications I mentioned already is MRI machines are absolutely ubiquitous. I don't know how many there are in Australia. There's probably at least one in nearly every hospital, something which you just take for granted. So, you know, most people, have, I guess, have, when they get a bit older, have had a, at least one MRI, two hybrid systems. So this is a dream. This is one saying in the Sahara, there's a dream of getting the sand, get using solar power to make the sand into superconductors and then being able to go through and get um, desalination from all the power and using the superconducting wires and the idea of um, creating a forest in the desert. So that's sort of one thing which I love that idea and I thought I'd just put a dream out there for fun. And then this is another one which is equally uh, unreasonable, but this is a superconducting um, underground city where you have the superconducting power, you've got the maglev train, and it's only got a little bill of $100 billion, which compared with the SKA, I guess, is um, quite expensive. But maybe we can, there'll be the future cities, who knows. And then I guess the other area which has probably touched our lives in the sense of understanding the world around us is the whole CERN Large Hedron Collider is one big superconducting magnet, 27 kilometres in diameter. 
and it did discover the Higgs boson, which is meant to explain where matter comes from. I am definitely not a particle physicist, but it's something which is the most extraordinary human achievement to be able to, to have got all that, it's helium cool, they go through quite a few buckets of liquid helium. If you think of that cost, $30 a litre, it's quite, I know they recycle it, but it's still, it's an extraordinary human achievement where someone theorised something and came up with it. With setting up an international experiment, got everyone to coordinate, cooperate, and be able to show that it really, human brain can think these great things and then demonstrate it. And this is one which is not as good, I won't have touched your life yet. This is the idea of nuclear fusion. Instead of fission is where you break things apart, the fusion is getting hydrogen atoms pump them together. And to make that happen, you try, want to get a plasma contained within a superconducting magnets. And this is an example of where we haven't quite got the international collaboration. We've got ITAR working there, but it's not at the same quality of engagement. And they keep saying it's seven years away, still seven years away of trying to get to a point where you can get the equivalent of break-even so that you get more energy out than you get in. And it's the, basically using the idea of the way the sun is able to uh, create energy. So quickly with small scale, there are things that are in common use now. And this is something more in the USA, but it's going to happen more in Australia. This is Conductus, which is a, a superconducting wire, but they also have a wireless solution. And they're using um, cryo coolers, which are electric coolers, which are coming more and more around to create uh, filters. So you can sort of see this is very important in telecommunications to make sure you're using the band of, of the telecoms frequency band that you're, you're meant to use. And uh, this is something where they've uh, sold 6,000 of these and uh, they're part of the, the, the base stations in, in many parts of the USA. And uh, let's get, as we see going to uh, 5G type um, systems, we're going to see more and more superconducting filters being able to make sure we've got our bit of the band. So they've sold 6,000. They allow carriers to add 8% more on their, on their spectrum. They've got better signal to noise. And so the other is also you get better coverage. So you um, can, don't have, need as many base stations, which is going to be really important for 5G. Another one is in Out of the Fog, I love that name, it's a US-based, um, also I love this too, this is the picture of it, apparently it's secret, so they put, show you the back of the system, but this is using these really miniature cryocoolers, and again they're able to create these filters, they're installed on Navy ships in um, the USA, and you can see here this is a um, conventional filter, just to give you an idea of how good they are, this is just cooling that conventional system. And then when you put an HTS system in, you can see you get big improvements of tightening up that filter. And that's really important if you're worried about telecommunications. This is moving to MedTech. And so this is something that's interesting. This is coming from Taiwan. And they've used a squid system to be able to detect nanoparticles, magnetic nanoparticles that are functionalized with ultra low concentrations of a um, analyte that allows you to detect, in this case, they've been looking at uh, detecting Alzheimer's. And this, the idea is early detection, and they're able to go through looking at comparison of healthy and AD patients at different ages. And apparently, I'm told by my daughter who, who looked at this data and said, wow, this is very convincing from a medical profession. She's a doctor. So the thing that's nice is it can allow improvement of early detection, like cost, low, low invasiveness, Hopefully, for all of us, we can get early detection and treatment of our Alzheimer's as we get older. 
cognitive degeneration is going to be a major, major problem. You know, more than 85 million patients globally. It's going to just grow, and the cost in the US healthcare is huge. So in Australia, it'll be similar. So I mean, a portion of that, but it's going to be something which is really, really important. So that's just one application of using these very sensitive detectors to be able to um, see things that no other detection system can. Remember I said you can detect the magnetic fields that come from your heart or your brain, and there are two applications which, one is electrodeless cardiograms and the other one is magnetoencephalography. Magnetoencephalography has probably taken off more and there's commercial systems, not in Australia for medical applications, but it's really good being able to pinpoint exactly what part of the brain, for example, is having, um, causing uh, epilepsy and they're able to get in there and do um, cauterization and a, a range of other things. They're able to do, diagnose different mental illnesses and I'll show you some other work in a moment where they're actually able to look at the way the brain operates. The other thing that's interesting is they're able to mix it in with MRI systems and be able to then get real information of the working brain as it operates. This is something which is rather cute. It's a technique used in Japan. Uh, apparently they have needle stick injuries in Japan. So they have your beef steak and sometimes the when they must inject them with horrible things and the needle sticks break off and they find it in your sushi or whatever it is. <laughs> and they have 60 of these needle stick injuries a month in their food. So they're trying to find them because they don't get picked up by normal metal detectors. So this is one we have uh, magnetize it. You go through and you have the squid system. So it's magnetizing it, goes through and it gets um, picked up. And from that, you're able to see whether or not it's got, got a needle stick there or this is something which has been operating in a factory in Japan since 2006. And then there, this is another system. This is an educational system uh, for Mr. Squid for your, for your laboratories. We're teaching kids about superconductivity. And we actually make the squid systems, the little squid chips for this particular company. There's lots of weird and wonderful applications. So there's squids in space. We're actually working with NASA at the moment. They want to put land tem on the moon. So we're going to call that moon tem, I think. Uh, put them in satellites, gravitational wave detectors, they've helped to find part of LIGO, underwater detectors, we've seen that, mind readers, I'll show you that in a minute, bolometric terahertz mixers, those immunoassays I've shown you, and quantum computers. So just to finish off, mind readers, Macquarie University actually in their linguistics department has a whole suite of these superconducting systems for looking at the way the children learn language. And apparently they can see that Adults, when they hear bad grammar, their brain, your brains go all crazy. So it's something, it doesn't matter whether you're speaking Chinese or English or German, apparently we, our brains do not like bad grammar. So it's, um, apart from also learning how to, um, how, how people acquire language. So that's really interesting. This is some work we've done on terahertz imaging. It's sort of a little bit like Superman vision and it can see through clothing in order, or packaging in order to see whether there's things you like we put a syringe in a chocolate bar, or the other one is actually looking for skin cancers below the skin. Another thing at work that's being done is the development of the next level of not quantum computing, but actually regular computing. Exascale computing is, um, DARPA did a study in 2008 and said that if we want to get to this sort of super duper computing, we actually need to have a 500 megawatt power supply next door to these big computers. So just to let you know, uh, Fukushima, you know, the one that melted after the tsunami, it was about 460 megawatts. So standard 
Moore's law type computers is not going to do it. Um, this is looking at the comparison of a, in this case, a petaflop um, Jaguar supercomputer at one of the national labs in the USA. And you can actually get the same power for that, although they're still working on it from Northrop Grumman and various US defense supercomputer, which has got the same, same power, but you know, it's in basically um, in a, a dewer with a little bit of liquid helium next to it. Finally, the thing that's probably, we've seen computers go from being, this is the first transistor going all the way to computers being ubiquitous all over us. We're going to be seeing very soon superconducting quantum computers, which are going to really change the way we think about a whole lot of stuff. Google plan to have a quantum computer made of superconducting devices like the one there by the end of the year. We're interested to see if they do. And then finally, this is a cryocooler, which has just been, so this is a five cent piece, not a 50 cent. So it's you know, tiny, a little cryocooler. Remember I was talking about using buckets of liquid nitrogen. We're able to get to 77 Kelvin on a little cryocooler like that. That's gonna really change the um, use of superconducting electronics, particularly high TC ones. And so you're gonna be finding they'll be probably in your benchtop computer before you know it. So what I want you to take away from today. I want you to tell everyone that CSRA does great research uh, and that they have great cool scientists. Uh, science, being a scientist is a great career. Hope you understand now the basics of superconductivity. Told you how to win the Nobel Prize. And I've also said that scientists are not all nerds, so not like that. Uh, but rather, the thing that's amazing about working in CSRO, working in science, is that we leave amazing legacies. And that's something which I think, as anyone who works in science, is always really proud of. The fact that you do things that shifts the dial on so many things whether it's just that paper you publish that leads to someone else build, you know, building on that and doing amazing things, through to actually seeing something through where you can see the outcome of your research. Has superconductivity touched your life? Well, there's a list of the filters, the discoveries, the food, systems on defense, uh, more discoveries in Germany, uh, Mr. Squid teaching in 500 schools or universities, lots of old people who aren't gonna get Alzheimer's. And then, of course, MRI machines, power grids, trains, uh, motors, and uh, mind readers. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE dot QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.